Hello, everybody. Welcome to Muses of History. It's Taya and Taylor. Finally, we're back. Yeah, <laughs> we're finally back. So we have our very first guest today. We're both really excited. Uh, we have author Janet Somerville here today, and we're going to let her introduce herself because she can do it better than we can. Janet, take it away. Hi, everybody. I'm happy to be here. I'm here to talk about the indefatigable, singular, timeless Martha Gellhorn, who was um, a journalist and a novelist and a playwright, uh, probably most known to most people as Ernest Hemingway's third wife, but she was so much more than a third wife. Awesome. I'm so excited. Actually, before we got an email from you, I had no idea who Martha was. So I'm really excited about today. So first of all, let's get started off with why did you choose to write a book about uh, Martha Gellhorn? And how did you find out about her also? Yeah. Okay, so this, it was actually by accident and on Twitter, if you can imagine that. Wow. But I know, it's, <laughs> it's astonishing. The whole thing's astonishing how it all came together. So I had just been in New Orleans and I had been to Faulkner House Books in New Orleans, which is this great independent bookshop down by St. Louis Cathedral. And I asked the bookseller to recommend a book to me mm-hmm. that, that, probably I'd never heard of, you know, and I taught literature for 20 years. So, uh, you know, I'm up to date and on current writers and taught lots of the classics. And, and she recommended a book called What There Is to Say We Have Said, which is about the correspondence of two great American writers, Eudora Welty and William Maxwell. Mm. And I read that book and I loved that book. And I was Quelling about it on Twitter, and a bookseller in Fife, Scotland, responded to me and said, "Have you? I know that. First of all, crazy, what? right? A bookseller in Fife, Scotland, uh, wrote to me and he said, "Have you ever read the Selected Letters of Martha Gellhorn?" And I had not. So I read the Selected Letters of Martha Gellhorn. I read Caroline Moorhead's award-winning biography of Martha Gellhorn. And then I read every book of Martha Gellhorn's that she had written herself that Mm -hmm. I could find. So I read her book, which is um, a series of four novellas called The Trouble I've Seen that was based on her work during the Great Depression for the Federal Emergency Relief Administration Mm -hmm. in the East Coast textile towns. I read her collected war correspondence that she selected in a book called The Face of War. I read her peacetime reporting called The View from the Ground. I read her novel about the German-Jewish refugee crisis in Prague called A Stricken Field. I read her book about the liberation of Dachau called The Point of No Return. She wrote a lot. I mean, she was really known as a a war correspondent, And that happened for her accidentally too, but I'll come back to that. Um, So then I was going to write a novel about her Mm -hmm. and I I read then, and I started to write a novel about her and I read in the trades that Paula McLean, who's a New York times bestselling novelist. Her first book was called the Paris wife about Hadley Hemingway, Ernest's first Mm -hmm. wife. 
she just announced that she was writing a novel about Martha and Ernest. So I thought oh. there's no way I can compete with Paula oh. McLean. <laughs> and, you know, there's no way Ed, that a publisher would acquire a novel about Martha Gellhorn at the same time that Paula McLean is bringing out a novel about Martha Gellhorn. Oh, so okay. through another series of serendipitous encounters, including meeting the American writer and journalist Adam Hosschild mm-hmm. at um, the Toronto International Festival of Authors. He wrote a book called Spain in Our Hearts, which is about uh, the Americans who volunteered during the Spanish Civil War. And in it, he wrote about Martha. And at the back, in the acknowledgments, I'd seen that he had got permission to get access to Martha's restricted papers at Boston University. So I talked to him after the event. I'd read the book. I was talking to him about Martha. He said, here's my card. Give me a week. Write to me in a week. Email me in a week. And I'll put you in touch with her literary executor, which is Mm. what he did. And I wrote to Sandy Matthews, who was her executor and also her stepson, (laughs) asking if I could have permission to access her papers at Boston University because they're restricted. You have to have his permission in order to have access to them. So obviously he gave me access and I didn't know what I was going to write once I got there until I found, you know, I was in the archives and, and made a list of uh, a variety of things that I thought I could possibly write about and, and wrote to Sandy and said, here's a list of things I'd be interested in writing about. What do you think? And he wrote back and he said, you can do whatever you want. So that's Aww. what I ended up doing is the book that you have in your hands. They're yours mm-hmm. for probably always, which covers her life basically from 1930 to 1949, which is the time when she was probably most active um, and when her life touched up against the lives of the people who were the history makers of their time, people mm-hmm. like Ellen Roosevelt and H.G. Wells and Ernest Hemingway. So that's how the book ended up happening. And the title actually comes from uh, one of the letters to one of her friends. And that's how she ends it. She signs yours for probably always. And I, and I love that as a title because it, it really is true for most of the relationships in her life. They were for her friendships were for probably always. They really were. That is a whirlwind of a story. <laughs> well, that's only, that's only the beginning, too. Right? <laughs> but you know, when the book came to be, but uh, and I had to figure out a way to shape it, and um, and there's just so much material in, in in the archives, and I decided that I would finish it in 1949 because she was a single parent mm. adopting um, an Italian orphan. And it was just a good time to 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 finish the narrative, yeah. um, knowing what knowing what would still come next because I still plan to write a, a subsequent volume that would cover oh. 1950 to 1998, which is the second half of her life. Awesome. So. so, how did you like sift through all of that information? What was your research like? Did you only use the archival? Um, materials that you got from Boston University or what, 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 what did you do for that? What was the process? It's, it's mostly from Boston University, but I also have uh, material from the New York Public Library and from the Kennedy Library 
uh, also in Boston, which is where the Hemingway papers are, and from the Beinecke Library at Yale University and the Princeton archives, because there, there were people who are included in the book whose correspondence was, was also there. But one of the key things um, in writing this book was discovering, I made so many fascinating discoveries uh, throughout the process. The long believed narrative about Martha's relationship with Ernest Mm -hmm. is that not long before she died, she actually burned all of his letters to her. That was the accepted narrative. Uh And that turns out not to be true. As I discovered um, through the Kennedy library, through Ernest's papers there, because after Martha died in 1998, any letters that Ernest had written to her that still existed were then made available to any researcher, but people didn't know to look for them because they believed this narrative that, that, that she'd burned all these letters. And so I went looking for them and, there are, the, there are many letters from Ernest to Martha that are in his papers, but they could only become available for researchers by the gift of the estate. His fourth wife, Mary Welsh, was the one who was in charge of his estate. And um, her rule was that none of Martha's letters could be open until Martha was dead. <laughs> so, Ooh. all right. Yeah, it's really interesting, right? <laughs> So, and I also found letters from Ernest in Martha's papers um, that that people didn't know were there. So, as a result, I've actually contributed to the Hemingway Letters Project, which is a huge project um, oh. over many volumes of books that's uh, published by Cambridge University Press in the UK, and it's um, run by Sandra Spanier, who's an, an American professor of literature. She's the editor-in-chief of the whole series. And so I reached out to her and said, I found these letters. And do you want me to write write to you about the context of the letters? And I'll provide you the transcripts of the letters, uh, you know, as I transcribe them in, in the archives. And so those letters that the Hemingway Society didn't know existed are now going to be part of, of the Hemingway Letters Project as, in the subsequent volumes. So that's that's pretty fun, too. Cool. That's so cool. That's yeah. A detective. Oh, I love it. <laughs> yeah, no. Well, that's what you are in the archives, right? You, you have to, um, it requires patience and tenacity. Um, it can be exciting. And I don't know if you know about Robert Caro, but he is the great American biographer of Lyndon Johnson. Mm. And you might know about him being in Texas. Lyndon Johnson was in Texas, <laughs> yes. right? He's <laughs> in Austin. The, yeah. the Johnson Presidential Library will be in Texas. I don't know what, what city, but it, it'll be there. Anyway, Robert Carroll said, turn every page. When you're doing the research, when you're in the archives, turn every page. So read everything in front of you because mm. you never know what you're going to find. And because of that, I found uh, the, what turned out to be I think the first letter that Hemingway ever wrote to Martha and it was dated February 1st, no year. And I know the year was 1937. Um, And it was in a folder that said letters from friends, 1970 to 1990. And this letter from 1937, never before found (gasps) that 
It was Ernest's first letter to Martha. And not only was her his first letter to Martha, it's actually about her writing. Ah. Yeah. It yeah. And oh it's, it's, yeah, it was just uh, amazing to find that. Now, I, I couldn't get permission to to use it in the book because oh. um, the Heming- as long as the Hemingway Letters Project is, is um, happening, mm-hmm. um, Nobody gets permission to to print any Hemingway letters. So, Rude. Uh, can you say what it? Can you tell us what it said? <laughs> You're allowed to say what I it can said? tell you some of this. Sure, I don't have it here in front of me, but um, uh, it begins something like, "Christ, Mar- uh, Christ, Marty, I didn't know you were that good of a writer." And her, he called her Marty. That's one of the things he called her, and he he was talking about. Um, one of her pieces in the book, The Trouble I've Seen, which was published in 1936. Now, they met in Key West in December 1936, which I can talk about in a little bit if you want. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But um, her book was published. It had done really well. And he was jealous of um, how good this novella was. It was called Ruby, and it was about a child prostitute. And it was an amalgam of, of many of the children that Martha had met during her work uh, when she reported on the treatment of the unemployed for Harry Hopkins and the Federal Emergency Relief Administration, which is where she worked from October 1934 um, through into 1935. And he, he couldn't believe how fine this this story was. And later on in the letter, he says something along the lines of, you know, if, if I'm asked who my mentor is, I'm going to have to say Miss Gellhorn, the author of Ruby. Yeah, no, it's crazy, right? It's crazy. And so, and Ernest wasn't known to be a generous person in terms of his praise for other uh-huh. writers. Yeah. He, okay. he would say that himself. And so <laughs> they met at the end of December, 1936. This letter was dated February 1st, 1937. And um, she obviously made a real impression on him in terms of of her talent and he was happy to praise her for it and and that's really interesting and it also changes um perceptions about them and about their relationship so that's why it was an exciting find in in the archives i was so disappointed that i couldn't include it i mean i write around the content of it in the book Uh and i quote maybe one one or two lines, but like for fair, as you would for any kind of fair use. Mm-hmm. Um, but but um, it's the only letter I really wanted to use of his in, in the book. Yeah. And I, I just couldn't get permission to do that. So, but now you yes. know a little bit more about it. Thank you. I feel like we have the inside scoop now. <laughs> we do have a bit of an inside scoop there. Yeah. I mean, Martha, she had such an extraordinary life. Uh, I don't know if do you want me to talk a little bit about her relationship with Eleanor Roosevelt. Eleanor is oh, probably the most yeah. famous um, person in this book. Martha quit Bryn Mawr at the end of her junior year. Mm-hmm. She decided that any degree that she could she would earn wouldn't give her a job that she actually wanted to have. So huh. she left Bryn Mawr. <laughs> I feel that after her junior year. And, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
I think it's pretty relatable, even, you know, a hundred years later, pretty much. Um, So in, in 1929, she went to Albany and she got a job as a cub reporter at the Albany Times Union. And so she was responsible for covering things like streetcar crashes and the mortuary beat. Like it was a shitty job, <laughs> but, but she figured she figured that it was a, a way of getting experience. She knew she wanted to write. She wanted to, she always said, I, I want to go everywhere and see everything and sometimes write about it. So she got to write about some things in Albany. And at the time, FDR was the governor of New York. Mm-hmm. And Martha's mother, Edna, who was instrumental in the League of Women Voters and getting women um, the right to vote, knew Eleanor Roosevelt through the League. And so she reached out to Eleanor Roosevelt and, and asked if she would invite Martha to dinner one night. And so Martha you know, went to the governor's mansion in, in Albany and had dinner with the Roosevelts in, in, 1930, in 1930 and thought nothing really of it. And then four years later, after her first sojourn to Paris, when she came back in fall of 1934 and was hired by Harry Hopkins, who was FDR's right-hand man, the Roosevelts would occasionally invite her to the White House for dinner. Just casually. They did this with all of their... No, this happened all the time with the Roosevelts. They treated their White House just... They were used to big houses, you know? They they both came from money. They were both generous spirits, and they liked having people around. So there were often people living for a spell in the White House, you know? Uh, It's just the way... I know, it's so unlike now. Right. Um, It's so unlike now. Anyway, Martha actually got fired from her job, uh, her government job, because she incited a riot among the unemployed in Idaho. She told oh them. My, well, she, my she, family lives in Idaho. <laughs> yeah. So in Idaho, she, she told them to throw a brick through the relief office window to get the attention. Oh my God. And the FBI came coming and said, you know, who is your leader? And they mm-hmm. said, the relief lady, meaning Martha. <laughs> and so Harry Hopkins had to fire her. Now, Gosh. she was fine with being fired because she was tired of, of the work by that time. And the Roosevelt's, Mrs. Roosevelt's personal assistant, whose nickname was Tommy, Tommy got in touch with Martha as she was cleaning out her office in Washington, which is where she was based for Fira. Um, and she said, well, the Roosevelts don't think, uh, you're going to be able to get another job in government. So why don't you come and live in the white house till you sort yourself out? So she moved into the white house. You know, it's insane, right? She moved into the white house in 1935, lived there for a few months. Didn't like it very much. She didn't like uh, the routine, but she did help Mrs. Roosevelt answer her personal correspondence. And that's where they really bonded. And, she wrote long loving letters to Eleanor Roosevelt and Eleanor Roosevelt um, wrote those same kinds of letters to her as well. And from 1935 and they were in touch until uh, Eleanor died in 1962. She, she actually died on Martha's birthday in 1962 in November, 1962. 
But here's an even crazier piece about how small the world is. Martha's younger brother, Alfred, was an oncologist, and he was one of Mrs. Roosevelt's attending physicians in her final days. Oh, wow. So, but they were friends their whole, you know, all of Eleanor's life. And and Martha said of Mrs. Roosevelt in um, an oral history interview she gave for the Roosevelt Library that Mrs. Roosevelt gave off light. I cannot explain it any better. Oh, and if you just think, you know, a we are in desperate need in 2023 mm. of leaders who give off light. Mm. Right? Truly. And, and Mrs. Roosevelt was so kind, unfailingly kind, not just to Martha, but just that was her way in the world to, mm. to be kind and generous and, and loving and all of the letters in, in, in my book uh, from Mrs. Roosevelt, are, you'll see, are, are absolutely like that. So, oh, wow. I didn't know you could just have, like, house guests in the White House when you were living there. That did not, I didn't think that was a thing. So that's interesting, too. But you got to live in the well, White House. I, I think it was, I think it was really the way that the Roosevelts ran the, <laughs> ran the White oh, okay. House, right? <laughs> I'm not White sure House that it was <laughs> always the case, <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, Lorena Hickok, who was, do you know about Lorena Hickok and Eleanor Roosevelt's lover? No. You don't know your faces say that you don't know. Okay. So she used to, uh, she used to be on the, the, beat for a paper and she covered the white house oh yeah um, but she fell in love with eleanor and eleanor fell in love with her so lorena hickok was also living at the white house at the same time that martha, martha was living at the white house and lorena hickok um also was a reporter for the federal emergency relief administration uh, as martha was i mean the the writing they did about the treatment of the unemployed especially in the eastern textile states is staggering and astonishing and um, really important to have gotten on the record. You mm. know, the, the, so um, just to be clear, so this is her work was like going around and seeing like the public of the U.S. in like very poor areas, right? That's right. Right. That's right. And you, she reported on that. And and what would happen? She she would write these long reports you know, 10, 12 pages long that she would send to Harry Hopkins at each each time, each place she went. And Harry would then send them on to Mrs. Roosevelt. And then Mrs. Roosevelt would send them on to Franklin. And there, there was one um, dinner where Martha was at the White House and Eleanor um, was a little hard of hearing and is reported to have shouted across the dinner table, Franklin, you must talk to this child about syphilis. <laughs> because Martha, syphilis was rampant in Gosh. in these communities and there wasn't proper health care. And in, in addition to all of the um, lack of food, the mm-hmm. privation in terms of clothing, in terms of housing, STDs were were just rampant, mm. right? And and Martha wrote about all of this. And as as a doctor's daughter, she wasn't squeamish about anything. I mean, mm. she just would report on the facts, right? Mm. She it was part of the story, and it was part of what needed to be 
told and that part of what the American public needed to understand in terms of suffering at home. Yeah. Right. I'm sure it took a toll on her as well to see that so much that she was like around that's like, I'm sure it was exhausting. But you know what she, yeah, absolutely. But her entire professional life, Mm. she always looked when other people looked away So when she reported on the liberation of Dachau, she was there uh, in my book. There's a, you see the, the certificate of the two hours she was given in May, 1945 in the days Mm -hmm. after the Americans liberated Dachau. She saw the corpses. She saw people who were skeletal and she, Mm -hmm. she reported on all of that. Right. And, Mm -hmm. and she said, as an old woman, you know, when she was in her 80s, she gave a, a radio interview here in Toronto when she was um, promoting her collection, um, The Face of War, in 1992, that Dachau, it was, it was as if she fell over a cliff and never recovered what she had seen mm. at Dachau. And Dachau wasn't the end for her. She went to the Nuremberg trials and she reported on the Nuremberg trials and she reported on the Eichmann trials. And then in the 1960s, she paid her own way to Vietnam and she reported on the children's hospitals in Vietnam with the napalmed children. And although this isn't in my book, uh, I saw the photos she kept from that visit and you will never forget the horror of of those images and she she really believed that you had to go on the record because if you didn't go on the record then the monsters would continue to get away with everything mm-hmm. right that, that you not to be sensational but to provide the truth Mm. to provide the facts. And that was important to her her entire life. Her last piece of reporting, she filed when she was 87 years old. Wow. She put on a a knapsack and her running shoes and she went to Brazil. She went to Salvador, Brazil, because she'd she'd caught a piece about a story about murdered street children. And at the time, Nobody cared about murdered street children in Salvador, Brazil. So Martha Gellhorn, veteran reporter, mm. 87 years old, went and asked questions and met street kids and talked to them and got their stories and their friends' stories and their siblings' stories. And um, she, she, wrote about, she wrote about that. And that was the last piece she filed as a reporter because her eyesight was going and it was too frustrating for her to do the actual writing. She couldn't see the keys on her typewriter anymore. She had to have somebody read back the pages as they Mm -hmm. came out and make changes very laboriously that way. And it was wholly unsatisfying to her um, to have to do that. But she really spent her entire life advocating for social justice. And that Mm -hmm. began in 1934 writing about those child prostitutes mm. who who w- were only doing that work because it paid them a dime and they could buy roller skates wow. you know yeah and and yeah. that's the other key i think to her work 
her reportage certainly is that she would find something very specific to an individual to give you a sense of the bigger picture, Mm. right? Because Mm -hmm. to see all of the horror is too much. So you pick one small piece, yeah, right? So when you have the, 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 and it feels like cognitive dissonance, right? You have this child (laughs) prostitute who wants to buy a pair of roller skates. Yeah. But though the roller skates are relatable, Mm-hmm. to most of yeah. America, yeah. right? So mm-hmm. people who are reading those pieces, well, just as when, when she first went to Spain, which is where she became a war correspondent by accident, <laughs> she said, you could you could take the streetcar to the front. You t- In Madrid, you took the streetcar to the front where the fighting was. That I mean, that's insane, bizarre. right? That insane. That's so yeah. great. I just, I, those mm-hmm. two ideas just can't, meet each other in my brain like it just right right that's the cognitive Gosh. dissonance of it yeah. but that's also the truth yeah. and uh one of to me one of the most astonishing things she wrote about Dachau was talking about how the local citizens shook the dust out of the curtains in their front rooms and the dust in oh. the curtains in their front rooms was from the incinerated bodies of the prisoners at Dachau. Oh my wow. gosh. Did she ask them if they knew how aware they oh, were? Oh, yes. There's a, sorry, I'm getting shrill. Of course she did. Reasonable. <laughs> She, she, um, she did. She wrote a piece actually called We Were Never Nazis, which uh, if you, you look for that piece, mm-hmm. you should be able to find that online. She wrote that for Colliers about that time and how so many people just said, you know, well, I never did that. I didn't know that. And of course, she didn't believe any of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, she didn't. She didn't believe any of it. As you were doing your research and you're seeing like letters closer and closer to the beginning of World War II, could you like hear the sounds of war coming like more and more? Like, could you see it coming? Because like thinking to me, like being able to like read people in the moment of like before such a big world event. Like, I wonder yeah. if you could. She if, knew. Martha she knew. knew. Coming. I mean, this is this is what's so astonishing to me about her. She's so prescient about so many things. She. Uh, there's so much I haven't talked about, but for example, <laughs> in 1933, she covered the London Economic Summit, and there she met Hitler's translator, a guy named mm-hmm. whose nickname was Putzi, Putzi mm-hmm. Hampstengel, who she said was even Nazi in his ta- tailoring. He was educated at Harvard. He played the piano. He composed Nazi marches. Oh, yeah. And in 1933, she was already disgusted by what he was was espousing on Mm -hmm. the Fuhrer's behalf. Mm -hmm. So in 1933, okay, she already had this notion that something awful was was going to happen. She was in Germany in 36, um, in the spring of 36, and 
brown shirts were the brown shirts were everywhere like fascism was rising up around her and she was taking note in the early days of the war there's a letter she writes to mrs roosevelt in 1938 this is the german jewish refugee crisis in prague she's writing from prague and she says that only hitler is going to know only hitler knows within the next X number of years, if there are going to be 6 million dead. <gasps> Truth is rarer than radium. This is in 1938. Holy oh my gosh. When she went to Spain in 37, she didn't go to cover the war. She said she just went to be there. It was an act of solidarity. And she had, she had no intention about writing about it. And then one day Ernest said to her, well, why don't you just write about Madrid? It's what you know. And her one of her most famous pieces. It's called High Explosive for Everyone. And it was her first piece of war correspondence mm. that Collier's published. And Collier's was a magazine that published weekly and had something like 3 million subscribers. So a big, like a really big audience, right? And she just looked around her and she saw how ordinary people's lives were affected by decisions that were being made by people who would never experience that kind of tragedy. Yeah. Right? Yeah. The generals, the world leaders, all of that. Yeah. So, yeah. Did I answer your question? I, I know I get. I think so. Yeah. Of, yes. no. I have one more question. Yes. Yeah. So, if you were to Google Martha right now, one of the first yes. things that's going to pop up might be her, her being present on D Day. Yes. Right? So yes. my dad always told us the importance of D-Day. My sister's birthday is also on D-Day. So it was like an extra yes. thing. So I've always like known about the importance of D-Day. And if you like yeah. online, it says that she wanted to be present as a journalist. It said no, because she was a woman. And so she right. instead signed up as a nurse <laughs> and then like like locked herself in the bathroom until she got to de- like so I don't know that's, only, that's like the online description. The only part of that that's that's accurate is that she locked herself in the bathroom. So I'll tell okay. you the DNA story. <laughs> okay, so the real story. Yeah, I'll tell you the real story. But I have to just back up a little bit. Okay. So all of all of the magazines could only send one accredited journalist to the front. So Martha was reporting on World War II for Colliers from the time bombs were dropped in Helsinki in December 1939. She was on the front back and forth to the Finca in Cuba, which is where she lived with Ernest, and reporting on the front. Now, she'd been trying to get Ernest to come over and report from the front with her because he'd, report, he'd served in, as an ambulance driver in the First World War. She knew what he was like in Spain in 37 and 38, how wonderful he was there. And he, he reported there for the North American Newspaper Alliance, NANA. And he decided he was going to take her accreditation papers. So he went to New York City. He met with her editor at Collier's and said, I'm here. I'll be your guy. <gasps> they, so, so she oh no longer gosh. had accreditation papers. What? Ernest was the most famous writer in the English-speaking world at the time. He takes her accreditation papers. Not only does he take his, her accreditation papers, but she arranges for him to fly to London thanks to Roald Dahl. Now, I don't know if teaching grade four. 
Yes, teaching grade four, you might know about Roald Dahl, right? I that Roald Dahl, James and the Giant Peach, the BFG, oh, Danny yeah. the Champion of the World, etc. Yeah. Okay, so Roald Dahl was working as a British attaché in Washington, and he arranged for Ernest to get on a plane because Martha set him up. Like Martha put mm -hmm. Ernest in touch with Roald Dahl. So that was mm -hmm. arranged. And she said, well, since I've arranged this, at least you can do is get me uh, a seat on that plane. Mm -hmm. And Ernest was furious by this point because really he just wanted a wife in his bed, not a war correspondent. No, he wanted a wife. She was never going to be that wife to him mm -hmm. or to anybody else for that matter. <laughs> and that's why, that's really why their, their relationship fractured um, because he really wanted a wife and she was never going to be that. So um, Ernest said to her, no women's allowed. So Martha made arrangements she ended up on a ship, a Norwegian's munitions ship. She was the only woman and the only civilian with 45 men. She sailed from New York to Liverpool. And somebody met her at Liverpool when they docked 10 days later. This is near the end of May, 1944, saying, Mrs. Hemingway, you have to come to the hospital. Your husband's in a, in a car crash. Come to the hospital. And he was. He'd had something like 46 stitches around his head. And she arrives at the hospital and sitting on the end of his bed is a woman named Mary Welsh. Now, Mary Welsh was a Time correspondent at the time, Time magazine correspondent. And she would later become Ernest's fourth and final wife. So Martha takes a look at Mary Welsh sitting on the edge of Ernest's hospital bed, thinks, okay, all right, you're <laughs> fine. You don't need me. And she checks into the Dorchester Hotel, which is where all of the foreign correspondents were staying, waiting for the D-Day announcement. The D-Day mm -hmm. announcement was made. They're all in a room, June's, the early morning of June 6th. She ends up going to Southampton where she, and remember she doesn't have any accreditation papers, where she sweet talks the MP into letting her on a Red Cross hospital ship lying saying, I'm going to write a story about the nurses, oh, a see. woman's story. Ah. And she says, and of course, nobody's interested in a woman's story. They don't care. They just <laughs> let me you know, go, go on, you know, go write your piece about the nurses. Oh so God. that's when she locked herself in the toilet until mm -hmm. the ship was underway. Mm -hmm. And she said, I was scared. I took a drink. I got unscared. She had a flask of whiskey. Mm -hmm. And then the ship, you know, went, said, said this is D-Day plus one. Uh, they were going to pick up the wounded. Now, Ernest was on another ship. And the rule was no correspondents were supposed to go to the beach, mm -hmm. at period, men or women. And Martha ended up on the beaches of Normandy and helping evacuate the wow. wounded. And she is not only the only woman to have been on the beaches of Normandy, but also the only war correspondent. And she helped. They stayed overnight on the beaches. They had to wait for daylight in order to get the wounded back to the ship. And she helped using teapots, pouring water into the mouths of the injured men. She spoke German. Her father was German. She spoke German. There were German wounded on board. And so the surgeon in charge had her tell them to be quiet. Mm. 
in German because she could speak German. Yeah. And she, they, they both wrote to, uh, a piece about this for Collier's and, and Collier's ended up printing um, both of their pieces. Ernest was called Voyage to Victory, which was really about um, the, mach- the, the kind of bombs that were used, like all of that kind of stuff and the mm-hmm. sounds of the bombs and hers mm-hmm. was about the humanity Aww. and hers was called the first hospital ship. And it's a beautiful piece. Wow. And she notes in it in an earlier draft of it that didn't make that I've seen because it's in her papers because mm-hmm. she kept it, but didn't make um, the Collier's magazine op- article that there was special tenderness towards the colored wounded which is one of the only times I've seen mention of colored soldiers mm. during the war. Yeah. So isn't that interesting too? Yeah. Right? Because you get it, it's a, I, I think that's probably a very female perspective. Mm. Right. Mm-hmm. So she was there like after they had taken the beaches. So she wasn't like being yes. shot at. How did she manage to get there if they were not allowing women or war correspondents so she just like she just got she just got in one of the landing craft and went out with them to help (laughs) and no one was like she just wanted to be useful because she and she was she was just useful she said you know they worked day night day they nobody slept they the nurses the doctors anybody and and she also talked about how the wounded were so tender toward each other, you know, asking on behalf of people who couldn't speak for certain kinds of, Mm. could, yes, could you bring him a blanket or could you, whatever, you know, that, and the way she wrote about it, she said, we're all hopeless against our own humanity. Mm. Gosh. Okay, I'm going to read that now. That's, yeah, that sounds, that's such a different perspective from what, other war history war correspondence that's right for mm-hmm. and for myself i really i don't i don't enjoy war history i just don't because right. of the perspective that is usually what we see but hearing these stories i want to go back and i want to read martha's take on the war because it's more of what I find to be interesting about history, which is actual people. Actual people. I want to tell you one other little story. This was, um, oh God, it's just so gutting too. But this, it, it points to her her intelligence about this, but, but also how she wrote. So Cologne, Cologne was bombed by the allies and, and she was there um, reporting on, on that and she met a flower seller so just imagine this the city has been decimated there is rubble everywhere mm. and there is this man middle-aged man selling flowers individual stems of flowers and soldiers are coming and buying flowers and and local women are coming and buying a clutch of flowers and that man in his pocket had um, folded up photographs of his family. Everybody in his family had died in the bombing of Cologne. His parents, his children, 
his spouse, his siblings, and he had photos of them that he showed to her. Right? Oh, Okay. And so, so in that, you have this, this German citizen, you know, the Germans who were being reviled by the Allies mm. in reporting, right? right? And you have Martha Gellhorn acknowledging the humanity mm. of the enemy, who's not really the enemy. Yeah. Wow. Right? So oh. it shows you how complicated how complicated war is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I, I really appreciate that perspective living, living. I, I live in Hiroshima. So yes, I, I work five minutes away from the epicenter of the atomic. Yeah. Bomb. I can, how is that? It. I see it from my school window. It's weird as an American. Um, it's very like, I have to not think about it a lot sometimes yeah especially when yeah. i'm teaching my students um because do you see the shadows most of the shadows are have been removed and placed in the museum but there are still okay. shadows especially on the bridges so yeah i see the shadows yeah. On, yeah. On, on when i'm walking home <laughs> I, I see them so yeah i startling really appreciate that perspective of her acknowledging that the the enemy air quotes heavy air quotes are they're just right. people and they're not actually the enemy so right wow. yeah yeah no her her honestly her her reportage her her war resp- war correspondence really lay the ground for so many other women war correspondents you know if if Martha Gellhorn hadn't existed there wouldn't be Christian Amanpour Mm. There wouldn't be Marie Colvin, you know. Um, yeah, she really was a groundbreaking person. And, and so few people know about her. And, and one of the things I'm proud yeah. about uh, with this book is sending a, a flare up to new generations about her and, and to see that an individual can make a difference. And, and that social justice matters. I mean, and that that we have to we have to be aware as fascism rises up around us again mm-hmm. in 2023, right? The lessons right. that we should have learned from before mm-hmm. that we haven't learned yeah. well enough yet. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Hopefully this around the the Marthas of this generation can learn yeah. from Martha and the other war correspondents and just ju- women journalists in general. Yes, women in general. Yeah, yeah. I love and it. and she never. I mean, she, she didn't ever want to be treated differently from mm-hmm. the men. Mm-hmm. She she just wanted to be one of them. You know that yeah. the war correspondents were her people. Mm-hmm. You know, people who would run into troubled zones and get the stories and write about ordinary people just living their lives in in the face of war. It's it's a it's, she still remains a wonder to me. I I, I still can't mm-hmm. believe she did all that she did. What's the one thing that you want to leave our audience with about Martha? The most important thing to take away from your book or who Martha is as a person? Well, I, th- I think in terms of her professional life, she, 
her words are timeless and you know it's a, it truly is astonishing to me how observant she was how she understood people and how she understood governments and you know she she said um, a citizen's job is to make a fuss to complain to protest <laughs> The price of freedom is eternal vigilance. We need to live those words if there are going to be future generations to enjoy the places we are. I mean, we democracy isn't static. It, it, it's ongoing. It's if we want it to be ongoing, we have to participate. And it's up to everybody to participate in order for it to thrive and and she never was quiet about any of that and she was fearless in the way that she would speak out uh, about injustices and i think anybody who would even the thing about this book too is you could just open it to any page and read any letter and see how she's engaged in the world around her. Mm. It's not just about her and mostly it's not about her. It's about her way in the world. Mm. So thank you so much for joining us today, Janet. It was so interesting. I was at the seat. Uh, no, what is it? The edge of my seat <laughs> the entire time. Thank yeah. you so much. So if our listeners want to know more about you and read your book, where can they find you and where can they find your book? Okay. So I have a website, JanetSomervilleWriter.com. I am very active on Twitter at Janet Somerville, S-O-M-E-R-V-I-L-L-E. Until Twitter shutters, who knows what's <laughs> going to happen with that. And uh, I'd be happy for you to look for it at your favorite independent bookseller, um, it's also available um, in audio. And um, if you check through bookshop.org, okay. you can find um, an independent bookseller near you anywhere in the U.S. Okay. Uh, it's also available on the A Word and, oh, and other places. <laughs> other places, yeah. So, and ask for it at your local library. I oh. Writers are always happy to have their books read from from libraries and if libraries don't have the the book then they if you request it they will usually order it in so a shout out to libraries cornerstones of democracy yes <laughs> We are so excited to bring you bite-sized stories of women's history every Tuesday Due to our super busy schedule, we will be taking a bit of a break to prepare for season two in April. So we will see you then. Bye.